Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Now, B, I've given you control over this episode, haven't I? Are you prepared? No, but I'm. Um, this is what I do. I wing it. I'm so good at winging life now. Like this is the feminine. I sit in the trust. I trust. <laughs> we know. We know what we're talking about. I don't need a plan. Okay. So Karen, the trust. See, Catherine knows we're winged, <laughs> and I've winged it with Catherine. I've won it. I've <laughs> won it with Catherine before, and we're magic. So, what we didn't tell okay. people. Is that Catherine? Oh, you ruined the guest appearance. <laughs> I did you know not. It. You told the name. <laughs> you told the name. You said I'm going to wing it with Catherine, and you always let. The issue is, you can edit this and and prove me wrong or right, ladies and gentle. No, ladies and jelly spoons. I stand before you to come behind you or whatever. I don't think they were the words. That sounds really rude. I come before you to stand behind you. That's what it is. Don't I don't come behind you. I stand. Anyway, <laughs> see how good it is when I wing it. Start editing. This is totally out of Mel- Dr. Melanie Jackson's comfort zone right now. Episode 13. We're doing birth mapping with Catherine <laughs> Bell. I said it. Okay, go. Is there anything, Mel- look, Mel, I just want to honor you. Is there anything you need to do before we carry on with this? I just need to know you have a plan. Why? Because what are you going to talk about? We're talking about birth plans and not having birth plans and birth mapping and why we just need to trust the process of winging it and not winging it and why we don't want to wing it. All right. I'm going to, it's in okay. I'm here. Just, I'm here for support. And yeah. I will bring us back to center if you guys go off track. That's my job here, but I trust you. Go. Have you got a, um, she doesn't trust us, but she's trying. She's so, trying so hard. Do you have a paper bag, Mel, that you can breathe into should you need one? No. All right. I don't panic. I'm not panicking. Catherine and I are just going to have fun. Please do. Please do, do. I get to call you Dr. Catherine Bell yet or is that not no, official yet? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. So in the future, this epic woman will be Dr. Catherine Bell because she's currently studying her PhD. Tell us about you and your magic, woman. Tell us who you are. My journey to mapping started when I became a mum with a capital M and then became pissed off with a capital P because we were just not being given the tools, the information, the direction that we needed. We were all travelling blind. Soon after I had my first baby, I discovered these things called doulas, like, whoa, what is this all about? You can know stuff and you can be supportive. Well, I want in on that. So I did the doula training and through that discovered birth plans. And I thought, how good is this? You can actually plan for something. Well, it turns out they weren't really very good, were they? <laughs> so that took me on another step of saying, well, what's what's wrong here? What's going on? All these templates, you know, fill in the missing space. Do you want to do this or not? It seemed pretty reasonable, but they were falling short. And the thing that I realised was missing 
was the questions. We were telling women what they should know, but not giving them the opportunity to find out what they didn't know and put it in their own context. So I started documenting the questions that I wished that I'd known to ask. And then listening to the mums in my mum group, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of questions there that I didn't even know. So added those to my list. And then I accidentally wrote a book. That's how many questions there were. So when I started to see that I was onto something here, I sent that book to Hannah Darlin, who I didn't know at the time. Hey, I know you're busy, but do you mind, you know, like reading this book that And this is winging it. This is how good it is to wing it. I love it. Go for it. Do it. You've got nothing to lose. Let the imposter syndrome go. Do it. Contact. She wrote, wrote back and said, obviously, she's busy, didn't have time to edit it for me, but she had some really good feedback. And one of the things that she said was, Catherine, there's a PhD in this. Can I just say that's Hannah's line for everything? Yes. (laughs) It's like hook, line and sinker. I happen to have a master's in science communication. I happen to have the background where my next step career-wise was a PhD. And so I spent three years going, will I or won't I? Will I or won't I? And in the course of that three years, that little book evolved into something that was actually catching on. Like I thought, if I don't do something with this, it's going to go the same way that birth plans went. And people will just start referring to birth maps, but there'll be nothing holding it. There'll be nothing underneath it that gives it structure or strength. It's no foundation. So I decided I needed to protect this idea somehow. And the best way to do that seemed to be to pursue this PhD and put it through the paces, try and see what it was about birth mapping that was making a difference that birth planning wasn't able to do. And so at the moment, I'm at the point where I've completed the literature review, which academically, the systematic review, as you pointed out on previous podcasts, this is this is it. This is where we decide what we know and what we don't know, where the gaps are. And so I had to go through all of the literature on birth plans and it got me really fired up. I got pretty angry because... We don't get fired up on this podcast, so just like get rid of that right now. And I found that like I was, I was also being really affirmed. Like there was so much in there that it's this, we know this. As mums who have been through the system, we knew all this kind of stuff. The whole try wishes and preferences instead of plan because plan is rigid. The language was very much about diminishing women and taking away their ability to make a decision. Even the word consent made me angry. Consent is such a problem because this is our legal framework and yet consent as a word implies Yes, I would like your consent to do this process or this procedure or this treatment. I'm telling you what I want you to do rather than here's something I'm offering you and I'd like you to decide what you want to do. Here is your alternatives. 
Here is your risks and benefits for this procedure. Here are the risks and benefits of the alternative. We're not having conversations like that. I've just finished listening to the vaginal exam episode and it's like, just hop up on the bed. We're just going to do this. That's the consent process. And so that really bothered me as well. So I had it. And it's coercion, right? Like you're the, the reason that the reason you don't like it is because the language around it implies that you have to behave yourself and be a good girl. So this is what I want. And this is what we're conditioned to do, right? Like, and it's 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 no one's fault. Everyone's doing the best they could, but basically our parents have and our schooling and our and our government conditions most of us to be very good girls and very good boys. Which is why I always talk about tapping into your badass wise woman when you're birthing to try and bring about is this a full body yes or is this a full body no but we're not taught to do that we're actually taught to people please and we're very much taught to people please under hierarchy and so whereas it's when you say would you like to make a decision on this people go oh I'm allowed to do something you know and the amount of people that say I didn't know I could say no that really tells a huge story around the language we use and not just the language it's the uniforms it's how we stand up over you we place on you on a bed and we stand over you so that in itself just in positional and and what that makes you feel it makes you feel like you have to give consent as opposed to you get to make a decision so is that have I summed that up around why you you know that 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 anger around that Absolutely. And this this agentic state that we go into is because we believe that the authority has responsibility, but consent gives the responsibility to women. We have the responsibility whether we want it or not. But we have been programmed to go to external authority, especially around our bodies. We are not very good. Some of us are, but as a general population and as women, we are not good with listening to our internal authority. And some of that comes because we're at capacity, we're tired and exhausted, and so we want someone to make the decisions for us. All of that programs us to be adults that are very good at looking to external people for the answers and guidance. And so that's where we're at. It's a very generalized overview. Absolutely. And it's really overwhelming when you're stepping into a new environment and then being asked to make some sort of assessment on that environment and you've got nothing to go on. So we're told that birth is unpredictable, so you can't plan for it. Don't bother. So it's very easy to say, well, they've been here before, let's trust the care provider and just go with what they're doing. But that care provider is going to be variable. There's 11 different models of care in Australia and within those 11 different models, there's 830 plus different approaches to care. It's a roll of the dice in for most of women. The first time you enter, you go to the GP, You've peed on the stick. You know you're pregnant. But until you've been to the GP to have it confirmed, you're now given permission to be pregnant and you're given your first referral, which is the question they're going to ask. Do you have private health care? If you say yes, off into the private system you go. If you say no, off into the public system. If that GP doesn't particularly like home birth or the birth centre or midwives, you're going to be directed or, or to know about it because often know about it. They, just That's may, right. they may not like it or not like it. They may just not know, not know about it. That's right. So you're going to be directed to the nearest hospital. Most of us assume that standard care is standard, but with 
830 different approaches, it's a bit hit and miss to whether or not you're going to get the one that aligns with what you want. When yes, you- Mel, I'll unmute you and you can ask a question because I'm controlling this today. I put my hand up so I didn't interrupt. When you say 830 different approaches, what do you mean by that? So within those 11 models, each hospital will have a different culture in it, slightly different way of doing things, a slightly different policy. So you've got your low-risk hospitals that might have to work within tighter parameters. So you might have a hospital that is more rurally based and they can only accept you if your um, labour starts after 37 weeks or before 42 weeks. Outside of that, your care will transfer to a different uh, model and quite possibly far away. But within those models, you've got your um, midwifery-led care and then obstetric-led care, and then you might have a mixed version of care. Maybe you're in a GP and midwifery care. But those 830 different approaches will be based on what's going on in that hospital. If it's a tertiary hospital, you've got a higher chance of people needing to practice, do a certain procedure so that they can tick it off. So you might end up getting offered a procedure, not because it's necessarily warranted, but because somebody needs to tick a box that day. So like that would be a student or if it's a teaching hospital and students are there to gather experience and they will do procedures in order for that student to benefit. Yes. Can I not necessarily to the benefit of the woman. Which we're learning about in this podcast. Can I just ask the question everyone's asking, everyone wants to ask, who counted them? And how did it get counted and where is it published? This is in the mother and baby report data. It was summarised in in that, the 2020 report that I'm referring to. Thank you to the person who counted that. That would have been very, that's really challenging research to do. That's pretty phenomenal that someone's done that. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. So you've just done your literature reviews. How did we get to birth plans? How did they come about? So they came about 40 years ago. Penny Simpkin and Carla Ranke got together and decided women needed something to help them to better communicate in um, their pregnancy with their care providers. Women didn't have any agency. They were just at the mercy of the system. So they made a pamphlet which described a process that they called the birth plan, which suggested that women should discuss these aspects with their doctor. And it might have been things like, you know, vaginal exams or do you want to have monitoring do you want an epidural? So we're talking 40 years ago. So it's a slightly different system to what we've got now. It's been increasingly medicalized since then. And Sheila Kitzinger um, was one of their colleagues and she decided to take the birth plan concept across to the UK. So Penny Simpkin and Carla Ranke are based in Seattle and Sheila Kitzinger's over in London. And they're both introduced this concept. In the US, there was a lot of pushback. But in the UK, where they're ever so polite, they absorbed it into the NHS and created templates and checklists. And within a few years, the birth plan was very much part of the scene. So most of the research is in either the UK or the US. But there's actually been some more recent studies coming out of Spain and parts of Europe where the birth plan concept is fairly new. And in Taiwan, where it's a novel idea, it's so new. And how does this translate into a, a culture where women have been groomed to be good, behave themselves, do what they're told, 
to then suddenly being given this opportunity to have a say in their own care. But is it a tokenistic opportunity? When we give women a template that's already been pre-made for them clinically, it's an illusion of choice because it's the choices that you have within that system. And if you don't know that there are other options, you might not know that you could go to a different care model. So you work within what you know. So it's about realistic expectations in that care facility. My biggest issue with it is that it looks at birth as an outcome-based event as opposed to a process. It, you know, and like I feel like I hear every day, or it didn't go to plan. The notion that it can go to a plan is what we really need to get rid of. What happens is rather than birth being this really po- positive transformation, it isn't positive for the woman at the time. And then for in, in order for it, because birth is always going to be a transformation, in order for it to become positive, and a lot of debriefing needs to happen around it. Whereas birth mapping really looks at birth and pregnancy and postpartum because it's all together as a process. That's a really good point about the hierarchy that we see in birth plans. So one of the problems was plan being fixed. If it's not the thing that you planned, then it's a failure. So one of the things that's been done to address that is to call them wishes or preferences and then have plan A, plan B, have your contingency plan. So you've now got six different plans, but each of those plans is somehow, if I get plan A, it's brilliant. But if I end up on plan D, well, that's devastating. It's a, it's still a failure. It might still be something that they've planned, but it was never something they wanted. And so when we've got that kind of framework happening, we still have women coming out feeling disappointed and done to rather than a part of that process. So with the birth map, what I wanted to do was create something that gave women the means to take that power or hold that power confidently, step into the responsibility and be able to figure out what the landscape looks like. It's not spaghetti. It's not some random thing and anything could happen. There are pathways And we can know those pathways and we can walk those pathways and see where the decision points are. So the book that I wrote has one chapter that discusses what a decision actually is. And it's not about being given information. So an informed decision doesn't mean I received information. It means I got information and I put it into context with who I am where I am, where I want to go, where I've been, what's my story? And that's going to be different for everybody. If you live rurally, you've got a lot of pressure on you to then travel quite a distance in labor. The number of rural women who accept an induction to avoid the potential of a birth on the side of the road is quite high. The number of rural women that embrace the potential for a birth before arrival and go, hey, birth is birth, I can do this, is rather low because the system doesn't by default give us that information. It gives us the induction information. So with this process, I hope to put in front of women what their options are, and then they can decide for themselves the direction they want to go. The second part of the book focuses on the questions to ask your care providers about the different stages of labor. And the reason I divide it into stages in the book is because that's the language they're going to hear in the system. So then they can start working with their care provider to discuss 
what labour will look like, what birth will look like, what the placenta stage will look like. But I do have a link in that part of the book to Rachel Reed's very, very good blog post about why the stages are complete and utter bullshit. So, And actually, when this episode goes to air, we will have already put to air a, a whole episode on stages. It comes after the VE episodes. So episode 11 is all about stages and we absolutely dismantle stages like Rachel has. And that was a yeah, big focus of her research. So you're on, you are on the right path. That's right. And the system is what we have to work with. And uh, yeah, another Rachel Reed quote being the system is working exactly as it means to, it's not actually broken. This is the system we've got. This is the system we need to understand, or as I refer to it, the landscape that we need to navigate. So if we can understand that landscape and how the pathways work in it, we're better equipped to know where we are and where our path can lead. So if we end up at a detour point, we know which way is going to be best for us. So the the classic detour point is the epidural. It's so common now. Women are just of the belief that an epidural is a pretty benign thing to happen, like taking a Panadol. Here's this magic epidural. These epidurals have robbed us of an opportunity to really embrace what our options are because here it is, problem solved epidural. But the moment in labor where you ask for an epidural is not the moment that you should be given the, the, the consent process. So the anesthetist comes in and they're lining up their little tools and you're leaning over that pillow trying to stay as still as possible even if you're contracting whilst the anesthetist starts to give you the consent protocol. These are your risks of the epidural. That woman is not going to go, oh, now you mention it, I don't think I'll have this epidural. They're sitting there going, just get on with it. Like she's just not in the state of mind. Because the decision's been made by her, right? Like she's made the decision to have it. When you've made up your mind, yeah, that's what they're thinking. Hurry up and get it in. I want this to be over with. The promise of relief is what they're focused on at that point. Then once the epidural is in, then the catheter goes in and they're like, what? And then there's a drip. And if they haven't already had Sinto at this point, it's not long before they're now having Sinto. They're starfished. The monitoring goes on. And where does that lead? We know that there's a higher risk now of the assisted delivery, which you know, is with the forceps or the vacuum, and then the increased risk of the third and fourth degree tears and the pelvic floor damage, because that pathway increases the risks of those outcomes. If they know that in pregnancy when they're not actually facing that decision they're often asking then the question okay how do I avoid an epidural whoa now I've got all these other opportunities that uh, are now available to me for me to better manage pain or the contractions or the feeling that I might have other people want to avoid an epidural because once they realize it goes in their back and the risks that are involved with what's happening there can make them think a bit differently. But if they don't know what's involved with an epidural and all they they hear about is pain relief, it is not the thing that they think it is. And so it becomes a confronting, what the hell just happened to me? And it can also then be they needed something. They wanted something often in the form of support. One thing that I love about the map is that it's really looking at 
A, all the information first to make a decision, the best decision you think you can before you're in the situation, but then going, well, when would I be willing to have something like that? When when would I be willing to accept it? And what what I've heard from you is when women have that, there is a sense of achievement rather than failure. Well, I got to that point and I had an epidural and it was epic for me. And it's exactly when I said I would want it. And so it feels really good to have it. That's right. The epidural junction point in in the birth landscape, if you get to that junction point and you know what an epidural involves, you can either accept it with full knowledge And as you describe, women who get there and they go, yep, I've exhausted my tools that I came with and I can see that this epidural is now my best decision, they embrace it, they love it, they celebrate it and they come through the other side feeling pretty awesome. The other option at that junction point is either no, try something else if you've got more in your arsenal ready to go or it might be that that's the detour point where the woman actually asks for a cesarean. So she might say, I do not want augmented or pain-relieved, medicalized assisted delivery as a risk. I would rather be prepped for a cesarean at that point. And she might do that because she's got you know, sexual trauma history, maybe a previous birth with a third or fourth degree tear, or maybe it's a previous cesarean, so she's a VBAC, but she's decided she just wanted to give labour a chance, but if that's the direction labour is going, she'd rather a repeat caesarean before she gets tired. And we talk about this a lot with prolapse as well, you know, like a lot of women are like, I want a physiological birth this next time and if I can't, then I'm willing to have a caesarean over epidural coach-pushing forceps episiotomy again because they don't want that and this isn't even really because some women are like can can I have that can I ask for that and these are the conversations and this is what I love about birth mapping that we need to be having in our pregnancy with our care providers and it's ultimately incredibly hard to do if you're care if you're in that 830 and it's fragmented care because you're seeing somebody every time but this is where it comes down to really owning it and having choice and it being about decision making rather than just consent because consent only really gives you the option of the epidural consent doesn't give you the option of a cesarean yes mel can you tell us the title of the book because we're talking about the book but i don't know if we've told people what the book is yet the book is called the birth map boldly going where no birth plan has gone before by Catherine Bell. By Catherine Bell. That's me. The book, which is what I'm testing in my PhD, gives women all those questions so that they can determine where those detour points might be and which path they prefer for them. If this, then that. And the book doesn't have a template. That's our culture, right? So I see people get really frustrated and ask you all the time for templates because we live in a template society and this is about what, this is what birth's going to do to you because there is no template. There is just you and your baby and the transformation and the process that you've got to go on. And I like to talk about it as birth is this wave that you've got to ride and you don't get to choose when you ride it. Either the system will and it'll push you in or your baby will choose. And we all want the barrel. We all want to surf the barrel. And sometimes we get that, but sometimes we actually, that wave comes crashing over us and it holds us down and spits us back out. Either way, we're going to end up on the shore. 
and trusting that process. When people talk about trust and surrender, that's true trust and surrender. Can you go into your birth knowing that you are going to make it out on the other side and that birth is going to give you what it needs to give you and that is not going to be something that you figure out beforehand. It's something you figure out afterwards. And so birth plans and birth templates take that away and they make you want to manage something that is ultimately unmanageable really. I mean, there are things that we can do to support us. There are decisions we can make that can impact our outcome, certainly. But the true process of birth and what we go through to transform from woman to mother, you can't put that on a template. No, you can't. And that's a and they want it. Way. They want it so bad. They do. They, it's like, can we skip to the good part? No. No, you can't. You have to do the work. And the good that's part a beautiful is the good. The good part is the reflection on the work yeah. that you've done. But we've it's really lost that in our culture and our society. And when we were talking about doing this podcast, Mel was like, "Oh, I don't deal with this in my work." And it, you know, I I didn't very much either because when you have continuity of carer and you have yeah. that beautiful relationship based care, you've covered everything. You've discussed it. You know it. You know that family and the story that they want and the stories that they're willing to have. And so the decision process happens at every antenatal appointment. And so for a lot of the work that Mel and I do and we prefer to do, families don't need this. But the truth is the majority of people having a baby in Australia and most parts of the world in high-income countries, this is imperative because this is the decision-making that you don't often get the time or the opportunity to have in those antenatal appointments. Like when I, you have an antenatal appointment with me or Mel, it's one to two hours, right? Am I right, Mel? Like, yeah, Mel's not in, right? One to two hours every appointment. You're lucky if you get 7.6 minutes in a fragmented maternity care system right now. So what your book, The Birth Map, um, does is it gives people the opportunity to have the thought processes and and start having the conversations either within their family unit or taking it to their care provider to to then make the decisions that are going to be necessary on on the day or maybe necessary on the day that's exactly right 90 90% of women are going into a system that does not have time to engage with them so they do need to take that responsibility. And if if they know the questions to ask, they can make the most of that 7.6 minutes that they've got. This appointment, I want to ask this question. And one of the key questions they might ask is, what does delayed cord care clamping mean in this hospital? And that's an important question because if you just write, I want delayed cord clamping on your birth document, they're going to to say, yeah, sure, absolutely. And then when you get one minute, you're going to be disappointed because their definition of delayed cord clamping is different to yours. So we want to get on the same page and asking those questions gets you that information so you can be prepared for what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the questions you need to ask are going to be different for every pregnancy you have and between every person, which is why it's not a template too. Because for people that have birthed 
more than one baby, your priorities change. Like what's important to you, that first birth may be very different, the second birth often because of what's happened the first time around. And so this is why it can't be this generalized thing. It's about making it your experience. Well, what is actually important to you? Well, I don't care about delayed cord gambling, but I really care about how I birthed my placenta. Or I really care about having access to an epidural because I didn't get one last time and I held trauma around that. And so this time I want it. So what is your policy around that? That's right. There's no one way. Only that individual for that particular birth can know what is important for them. And so the birth map allows them to ask the questions they need to ask for that particular pregnancy. So the second part of the book focuses on what they need to do to engage with their care provider. But it's not enough to just prepare for birth because there's that whole bit that comes after it. There's going to be a little baby that's going to become a toddler, that's going to become a teenager, and then, oh, wow, there's, you know, the rest of your life. So we need something to prepare for that. So the third part of the book helps women to ask some questions about what they might need for their situation and what they view themselves as a mother now or as parents and how their relationship is going to change. That movement from couple into family is huge and it can be a massive shock to to people who are assuming that it'll be easy for them. Breastfeeding is a learned skill. It takes time. And then we've got this, this amazing thing that's happening to us, which is a transformation just like adolescence. That beautiful word matrescence that more women need to know about. This is not just you go from being a a single woman to being a woman with a baby. You are actually going through a physiological, emotional transformation, which is incredible. And it takes more than one day. It's a year, four years of your life that you're being rewired. You taught me that word and you taught me that word when I'd already been through it and had no idea that I was going through it. And I'm a midwife. It's phenomenal the lack of understanding we have around our own sacred bodies and the sacred processes we go through as women. And I mean, that's why we're all here to do that. So you've written the book. Where have you gone with your PhD on this? Because you've written the book before you did the PhD. So now what are you doing with the PhD? So the PhD is putting the book through its academic paces. Uh, So my biggest challenge with the PhD was bias. One of the really important things you have to do in science is protect the bias. And that doesn't mean make sure you get the bias just right and get the answer that you want. In trying to test this concept that I've come up with, I have to be prepared that I will not prove my hypothesis, that the whole thing is bupkis and to be rejected. But you start these kinds of studies because you've got a pretty good idea that it's worth testing that it's not going to put women at greater risk. So it has to go through quite rigorous ethics. So to get to the point where I was able to test the book with women in the system, I had to show ethics that I was going to not put them at risk or that I was mitigating the risks the best way I could. So I got through ethics at the beginning of the year and in March started to recruit the first women And the first babies have now been born. And by the end of this year, all the participants um, should have had their babies. 
And there's about 40, 45 women who have been putting the book through its paces in different models of care. And so it's a qualitative study. This is a unique study in that we're actually asking women what they want. No birth plan study has done this before. They tend to just do a little survey in that halo effect time before they leave the hospital where women feel saved by the system. They're not very likely to say, I did not like my birth. But if they did have a pretty bad experience, they're very likely to say not satisfied. Women with birth plans are generally satisfied if that birth plan involved collaboration with the care provider. Where the birth plan has been made in isolation, they're generally disappointed because oftentimes there's been a mismatch. They've wanted something that's actually not compatible with that system or the care provider hasn't bothered to read the birth plan because they just do not have time. Or perhaps the birth plan was presented in a way that was just, what is this? You've been giving, given me this visual birth plan full of icons that cognitively is going to take me too long to understand. So it's like, yeah, just give me the summary. Give me the executive summary. And you're actually finding yourself having to advocate for yourself anyway. So then you start to think, why did we bother with that birth plan? The best birth plans are the ones that involve discussion with the care provider. The best way to go about that, I think, is woman-led, not clinically led. And so that's where my book comes into play. I wanted the women to have the means to guide those discussions, not the clinicians telling them when they could have that discussion. So when a birth plan template is given by the clinicians, it's usually around the 36, maybe 34-week mark, which for some women is too late. If a baby comes at 37 weeks, you haven't had enough time to even contemplate what's going on. And then now you're dealing with perhaps NICU and a lot more stresses that haven't been considered. It also doesn't bring into consideration that things that affect your labour and birth start in pregnancy from things like growth scans and other GBS swabs, other things that we've done episodes on and we will do episodes on around there not being a lot of evidence for the benefits of and those people really not understanding because we, we really compartmentalise and go, oh, pregnancy is one thing, birth's another thing, postpartum's another, where it just all really, it rolls into one. And we, once women have got those, the means to ask their own questions the question in the PhD is is the book enough is the book which provides them an overview of what to expect is that enough is the book the right mechanism or do women prefer digital an app to find their information online so this process is trying to find out what's the best way to get this kind of thing in front of women so that they can take that control. And I wanted to recruit women really early in pregnancy so that I could find out when they engaged with it. So I really wanted to know at what point women would engage with this kind of a concept, if at all. Can you share anything with us? My analytical stage is going to begin at the beginning of the year. I'm making plans to dig myself a big burrow and not come out of it for four to six months while I live and breathe the data. But generally what I'm seeing with what's coming through is that 
it is later in pregnancy that women start to engage with it. There's definitely a feeling of not having enough time to discuss things with care providers, particularly in, surprise, surprise, the obstetric model of care. So what are women doing with this book? How are they using it? But also what other resources are they they're coming across? Yeah, it's almost and like I, I have found that a lot of women come to me to do a birth mapping session and they are at around that 38-week mark and, and the bait and switch thing has happened where they've been promised a particular pathway and then suddenly everything changes and all the things that they were told they could do are now off the, the cards. If you're committing the crimes of, of not fitting within the, the narrow box of what's allowable. So a lot of women are actually feeling that that word allowed comes up a lot. Um, I'm not allowed to do this, but I don't feel like I want to take on the recommended care. How do I have that conversation? So this is really important skills that women need to have access to. And we can't just keep leaving women to go blind into this system without those tools available to them. So how long has the book been out? How many people have this in their hands, do you know, and are are using it? For someone who's doing a science thing, I haven't kept the statistics on this. (laughs) Um, I, I think that there's hundreds of books out there now, and I've had probably 200 birth workers go through my training and the idea of that training is to really get them to understand what an informed decision actually is and how you can sit by someone who might be making a decision that you would not make because that's often what happens in the system is if someone's making a decision different to what's being recommended it's seen as a challenge oh you must need more information because you don't agree with me you don't agree with me yet. It's not an informed decision until you agree with me, but it could be very much an informed decision. It's just not what you you would choose. So that can be really challenging for, for some birth workers to sit with someone who might choose within their rights to make a decision that might result in death or injury, which is absolutely their their right to make and that might be due to religious region reasons or philosophical reasons or it might be that It's due to I like this risk better than that risk because nothing is without risk. So they balance it up and decide what's best for them. So for me, I felt that it was safer to stay at home and birth those babies and just get on with it than to try and risk going to the hospital in labour and those births were brilliant and amazing. But they were brilliant and amazing because I felt safe and they were the decisions that were right for me. And I felt good about them. For other women, that's a really scary idea. And the induction suddenly looks really good. And so I would much rather that pathway because I feel safer. If she feels safe, she's more likely to birth better because she's where she needs to be. And that's really important. What is right for me? And that's where choice is so important because lots of women do feel really safe under private obstetric care and they want that. And that needs to be an option for everyone. It's just about ensuring people have all the right information first and it's not just based on what your best friend had or or fear from stories that have been passed down to you when you do that birth training do you cover much around the medical legal stuff because obviously that's where a lot of this ties into right we get scared that if we haven't coerced someone into making the the decision that we think is right then we're going to get in trouble as care providers that's right And and that's the problem with consent the consent is there because 
it's a process that helps relieve that liability from the care provider. So the care provider has to gain consent in order to do that procedure, otherwise they're breaking the law. But they also need to feel confident if it's informed declining, they need to be able to document that with confidence. So if a woman says, no, I don't want that, but doesn't sound confident, how can the care provider be confident that that woman's not going to come back later and say, boy, you didn't give me enough information or you didn't tell me what was going on. So that consent process is really tricky. But what consent is about or shared decision-making is about the care provider providing enough information that the patient or the, the client can make a confident decision and then it gets documented. So what they want to be able to do is document that discussion. And so through the birth mapping process, I'm hoping that that effective communication comes through and the care providers can document that confidently and meet their legal requirements without compromising the woman's autonomy and agency. It's a very fine line to to walk on. The, The next thing that I want to share is that game of birth. Because the Game of Birth tool is brilliant, if I do say so myself. I've also created a game. And this is a tool that um, I use in the training with birth workers, but parents can access it themselves as well. And it's like a choose your own adventure. It shows people what is random and what is not random. Where are the actual decision points and how do those pathways look? So you can play the game on my website in a digital version. People can join the access area, which is for free, but once they're in the access area, they can flip through the book and it's like if you have your sound on, it makes page turning noises, which I was so excited about. I like my books on a shelf where I can actually flick through them. So I was really excited about that. So I put the the book and the game on the website because if you go to a bookshop, you can flick through a book. So I wanted people to be able to make an informed decision about whether or not they wanted the book or not. So there it is, flick through the book. And there's a digital version of the game, which isn't as pretty as the um, print version of the game, but it has the same concept and it will give you a, a scenario. And then you have to make a decision and that forces you onto the next scenario. And then that scenario gives you some decisions. And they're all based on the 2019 mother-baby report statistics. So every time you roll the dice, statistically, you're going to end up on a scenario that is based on that the outcomes in that mother-baby report. If you play the game in the print version, it comes on a tea towel and it's got the, the pathways all um, laid out there and you roll a 20-sided dice and you roll the 20-sided dice and it comes up with the direction that you're going to go in, the random thing. How long does it take for labour to start? Do you go into labour before 42 weeks or are you starting to look at pressure of an induction? And then the decision point, are you accepting an induction? And so as a birth worker, you would use this tool to discuss what you might do in those circumstances and what each pathway would lead to. And the woman can then decide, well, yeah, I would accept an induction because at my particular hospital, if I don't birth before 42 weeks, I have to be transferred three hours away. Or she might say, if I make it to 42 weeks, then we're going to be staying with friends or family that happen to live near that location. 
what options are available to me, and I'll make those decisions. And if you've thought through some of these really practical decisions in advance, you're better equipped to make the decision should that scenario come up. The more you play the game, the more scenarios you're going to be exposed to. And so it's a more fun way to discuss some pretty serious potential scenarios and the scenarios that will lead you either to cesarean or an assisted delivery, or maybe you're going to experience a fast birth. So one of the pathways that I really encourage parents to go through is that fast birth pathway. It's a purely physiological approach to birth. And then right at the other end, you want them to think about what are you going to do if it's a marathon? What if it's a really long birth? So those scenarios, if they come up and you're facing it, you're not as stressed because you've got a preparation. You've had an imagination go through it without any fear of judgment. You're not looking at it as a, oh my God, something terrible is going to happen. You're just playing the game and seeing what happens. So there's no template, but there's an epic game. I love that yeah. I love that it's a game. How long did it take you to create that? As someone who likes maths, you would really appreciate the effort that I had to go to. And I chose the 20-sided dice because the numbers were easier to work out. I, I did start with a 12-sided dice, but 20 and 100 go together much better than 12 and 100. So this is free. It's available on your website, which is? Birthmap.life. Awesome. And the book is available there too. And it's also available in my shop. And people can find you on what social media channels? I'm on Instagram at birthmapping. I'm on Facebook, you know, if you ever remember to go there. And I'm pretty sure that's at birthmapping. It might be at the birthmap. You'll find it. It's there. Catherine got kicked off Facebook because of the nipple picture. And so when you get the book, you need to know this if you're going to get the book. Because the nipples are the dot points in the book. And so without that context, it it doesn't make them as powerful. So they're basically an FU to Facebook, the nipples. So I I mean, I just, I love that. That in itself is why you should buy the book. It's a drawn nipple. Yeah. And it's even black and white. Like it's, there's no color to it, nothing. And you were, yeah, your Facebook account was banned because of that. It's just so interesting. All right, so we did this wrap-up last week with Kirsten Small, and I really like the idea of it, so we'll go with it this week. In like a five minutes, our last five minutes together, what would you like to offer people? What would you like to provide them or summarise around birth mapping? I would love them to take advantage of the free resources they can access on birthmap.life. It's been put there for free on purpose because I do believe people need to be able to make informed decisions. Try before you buy if you like. If you want to buy it, I'll be very happy about that. But if you don't, use it. Tell me how you feel about it. The more feedback I get, the more this will evolve. And the more this can evolve, the better we have as a grassroots rebellion rising up, the more chance we have of actually impacting the system. It's a it's a consumer system. The consumer gets to decide. It's demand. Demand it, they'll change it. The more we know, the more we can change it. And that's what I love about all the resources you have. The reason behind why you're doing it and what you're offering is just phenomenal. So thank you for doing what you do and what you're doing for birth worldwide. We really, really value you and value coming on here today with us. 
This has been episode 13. Thank you for being here. We adore you. We can't wait to speak to you in the next episode. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>